Let me pray. <clears throat> well, Father, we do want to give you all glory. You are a great and an awesome God, and we are just thankful that we can come together as a community of the redeemed and learn from your word. I pray that this message will hearten those who need to be heartened, encourage those who need to be encouraged, and challenge those who need to be challenged. Lord, I pray that you'll work through this message to transform our lives and our community. In Christ's name, amen. Well, recently I have reached a new milestone. I'm now the father of a high school graduate. It didn't seem so long ago that I was the high school graduate, right? Class of 93. Now you guys are doing the math. If he was 18, class of 93, I'll, I'll, I'll just answer the question. 36. <laughs> 36. But you might think about graduation and why it's such a pivotal time because after you graduate, you're kind of being sent out into this world. You're, you're on your own, and, and naturally with graduation comes a time of celebration, but also a time of advice. And often the advice comes from one of your fellow classmates in the form of a graduation speech. Do you remember your graduation speech? Let me summarize it for you. This is the first day of the rest of your life. <laughs> Don't be afraid of failure. Follow your passion. And remember the amazing times we had together, right? Doesn't that sum it up? Doesn't that sum it up? Right, as you go out into this great big world, as you start your new adventure, you need to follow these precepts because life will be different. And I know for, for my daughter, at least, and for many of your children who are going to go off to college, uh, all that you have to give them right now is advice because you won't be there with them. They'll have to make their own decisions and chart their own course. Now, in 2 Timothy, Paul is about to graduate. He's about to graduate to glory. He's about to leave his protege, Timothy, behind, who will now assume the burden and the mantle of leadership. He'll be the tallest branch in the tree. And he won't have Paul, uh, Paul around anymore to, to advise him. And, and so, to a certain extent, this is his valedictorian address to Timothy. Second Timothy is his final letter. He gives his parting instructions. And the core of this instruction is really found in verses 13 and 14. Second Timothy Chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. It's kind of a repeat of what we read at the end of 1 Timothy 6.20. Guard the good deposit. This parting advice. He understands that Timothy is going to be the one to carry on the ministry, to carry on the tradition, to carry on the cause without Paul. Now, on a dark day in, in August, Becky and I will pack up our minivan with our daughter and leave her in front of Regeer Scholarship Hall in the belly of the beast at the University of Kansas. Oh, I know. How is she going to live? Right, we ask ourselves that question as well. Is this scary time for her, but even scarier for us? 
I tremble at the emotional outburst I will have when she leaves. <laughs> but it is a, a transition, and you always hear those horror stories about college. There's a campus minister who talks about a bar off of his campus where all the freshmen who drink there are Republicans, all the sophomores are Democrats, all the juniors are social Marxist, and all the seniors drink there to try to figure out what they actually believe. They're confused, right? So college is a time where you know that you're entering a world that is opposed, for the most part, right, to everything we hold dear in this room. And that can be frightening. But on the other hand, I look at my college experience, and I became a Christian in college. My wife became a Christian in college. And honestly, some of the ministry that I did there, uh, I was graced with, was some of the best ministry of my entire life, where you have people who are walking with the Lord even to this day. And so, how can you make sure, high school graduate, this is my graduation speech, by the way, one thing, as a pastor, you get tired of listening to other speeches and think, I've got something to say, and I've got something to say right now. <laughs> There's many of you graduating from college, and perhaps you're moving away. There's some of you who are graduating and going to uh, various state universities. How do you make sure that when you go off to college, you keep your faith? And not only keep your faith, you grow your faith. How can Timothy know when Paul is gone that he can keep growing in his faith. Well, from this passage, we have three simple commands. I tried to make them very memorable so that they will resonate in your head the first day of class. Number one, designate your discipler. Number two, do your doctrine. And number three, defend your deposit. If you do these three things, you will find that college is a great and glorious adventure. So, the first thing you need to do, college, high school, graduate, is you need to designate your discipler. You need to choose your teacher. Who will speak truth into your life? In verse 14, Paul makes it very clear who that person is to be. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. Timothy, there's going to be a lot of people who want to speak truth into your life, but you just remember the truth I have spoken to you. Now, was Paul just on an ego trip here? Right, Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is telling Timothy what Jesus told him. You see, and this is not news to Timothy. This is something that Timothy had already embraced. If we go into the near context in verses 4 through 5, Paul says, As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So he has absolute confidence absolute confidence that Timothy is a follower of Jesus Christ. But it is not enough for him to have that one-time experience. He must continue in that. 
You must continually choose his discipler. You must continually choose who will speak truth into his life. And there's some temptation not to choose Paul. Look at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Right? There might be some a tendency that the gospel is foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. The fact that Paul is in jail might cause people to say, surely he's done something wrong. But Timothy is to make the choice to choose his discipler, to choose somebody who is a follower of Christ. So how do you do this? What does it look like in reality? First piece of advice, okay? Declare yourself a Christian. The first day of college, declare, I am a Christian. If you don't declare yourself a Christian the first day of college, when are you planning on doing it? Have a Bible on your desk. Pray before you eat. When you go to a Bible study, don't say, I'm going to a group study. Say, I'm going to a Bible study. When you leave and get dressed up on Sunday morning, tell people, I am going to church. Would you like to come with me? You declare yourself a Christian. Now, some people will say, well, isn't that kind of spiritual showmanship? I mean, doesn't the Bible say, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them? For there'll be no reward for, from your Father who is in heaven. Now, now, in that context, you gain cultural capital by being a believer or a faithful Jew, right? That's not the case in college. If anything, you will lose social capital by designating yourself you're a Christian. But we see in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are a light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I mean, if people aren't afraid of saying that I'm gay or I'm transgender, then why should you be ashamed of saying I'm a Christian? Declare yourself a Christian. I am a Christian. Let the world know and let them hold you account, into account. The second thing you need to do is... Don't be ashamed of your heritage. Don't be ashamed of the Christian faith. Now, when you go off to college, you will be in an activist culture, right? Universities are synonymous for protest, for activism. People want to achieve and do good. In fact, when you look at the early church as the Jews were persecuting Christians, they sincerely believed, right, that I am doing a good thing. John 16, 2. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They thought they were purifying Israel so that they'd receive the blessing of Yahweh. Muslims will, certain ones of them, extremists, right, they'll kill people kill the infidels in the name of Allah. They believe they are doing a good thing. And in the environment that you're about to face, you're going to find that there's many people who believe 
that their cause in life is to liberate the oppressed. You have people who are oppressed by the racist status quo. You have sexual minorities who are oppressed by the biblical ethic. And every cause has a villain, doesn't it? There is somebody that has to be overcome. And who is the villain on your typical college campus? It's your parents who don't understand. It's the church. You think about Dead Poet Society. You guys ever seen that movie? You have an unorthodox and charismatic teacher at a preparatory school in New England who challenges his students to rethink their lives, to break free of tradition, to seize the day, to suck the marrow out of life. And these students are inspired. They understand this new way of thinking until the stodgy, conservative, tradition-bound parents put an end to it. Right? So, so who's, who's the enemy? You see, for these professors, and many of them get into this profession because they watch Dead Poets Society, right? For them to, to have that kind of influence, they need to, in their minds, liberate you. They're trying to liberate you. They're trying to be your savior. They're trying to, to help you to suck the marrow out of life, to be who they believe they want you to be. And so what will happen is they will denigrate, they will denigrate your heritage. Same tactic was taken by Paul's opponents. Paul knows a thing or two about this. The church in Corinth, famously troubled church, right? They, Paul paid them what's called a painful visit where he confronted them and they all turned against him. They did not support him. So he wrote a severe letter to them and to his relief, many of them repented, but some did not. And those who did not had some accusations against him. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we see a couple. Paul says in 10.1, Paul, myself, entreats you by meekness and the gentleness of Christ. And then he quotes the opponents. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. Then in verse 10, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. They're saying, you know what Paul is? Paul is a keyboard warrior. Online, he's a black ops titan. Online, he's a street-fighting god. But when you pull him away from the keyboard and the computer monitor, he is a 40-year-old man who's living in his mama's basement who eats Fruit Loops three meals a day. So you'll go off to college, and people will try to rescue you from us. Someone is conservative, they approve of the oppressive status quo. If someone really believes the words of the Bible, they deny the scientific consensus and are ignorant. Someone voted for Trump, they're a racist. Someone does not affirm the LGB agenda and your desire to explore that part of your life, they're bigoted, right? No argument here. 
just confident assertions. But you know who we are. You know this community. You have seen this community rally around people in their darkest hours, ministering to people in their loss. You have seen marriages be rescued here. You have seen outsiders being brought to the inside. You've seen people be loved and cared for. I mean, it's easy to hashtag hashtag activists, to organize a rally, go to a rally, but to get involved in people's lives and love them through difficult and dark times, that's what happens here. Never forget that. Now, the second temptation you might want to do is, is to maybe try to integrate some of these new ideas and these new thoughts that you're, that, that you're starting to embrace and understand in college with your old thoughts. They'll try to fuse the two of them together. One of the issues that Timothy had to deal with in Ephesus was he was ministering in an environment where uh, the prevailing knowledge of the day is that knowledge is evil. Or, I'm sorry, that knowledge is like the, the supreme good. They also believe that what was immaterial is what is essentially good and what is material is corrupt and evil. And so many of them tried to have this new take on the resurrection that suggested that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead in bodily form, but maybe in spiritual form. And they would have these very complex ways of addressing these issues and talking about it. And in 1 Timothy 6.20, we read, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Right? Where there was, when he received the special knowledge and the special enlightenment, at that point in time, you have arrived. And you're going to a place of learning and in growth where what you learn and what you understand will raise your esteem in the eyes of others. And one commentator says this, one thinker, he writes, proving we can intellectually grasp the ideas that secular elites have branded as sacred knowledge elevates us above the people in the pews who raised us. They now represent the characters that embarrass us. And we're eager to separate ourselves by flaunting our aptitude. There'll be a temptation for you to say, I'm not one of those Christians. I'm not one of those Christians. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but not like them. Not like the people who raised me. Not like the church who sent me. 2 Timothy 1.8, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the gospel by the power of God. You declare yourself a Christian. You boldly hold to the claims of Christianity. Don't alter them. And then thirdly, you choose your community. You choose your community. Who will disciple you? Who will influence you? Now, when you go off to college, there might be a number of options available to you. There are, right? It could be a fraternity. It could be a sorority. It could be a campus group. I looked it up at the University of Kansas. You have 500 campus groups. You have the Kansas Quidditch Club. You have intramurals. If you're looking for some single men, I got some options for you. You can join the D&D Club. Great source of single men. <laughs> or the Medieval Combat Sports Club. Another great source of single men. 
The odds are good in both of those, but the goods might be a little odd. <laughs> if you don't want to meet any available eligible men, you can join the KU Vegan Club, learn how to make beet loaf, or you can join a campus ministry. Now, there might be a temptation in this day and age that you might develop an online community, right? A lot of times who you select as a, your podcaster, who you follow on YouTube or Instagram, you could say, that's my community, but you know what? There's no substitute for face-to-face -face interaction, actually being around other Christians who will affirm what you believe and what you have been taught. And you know what? There's campus ministries all over. So be in your community in a campus ministry, and most importantly, be a part of a local church. Don't watch us online. Go to church so that when you don't go to church, people will know you are not here. I plan, Julia, on joining you at church and making sure other people know you. <laughs> this is my daughter, Julia. Have you seen her recently? right? You see, the body of Christ is a community where all of this makes sense, where you see people love, serve one another, we celebrate the same Lord. Be with your people, declare yourself a Christian, and join the community. So, the first bit of advice, designate your discipler, designate who's going to teach you. The second bit of advice is do your doctrine. Do your doctrine. Practice what was preached. Verse 13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So Paul calls Timothy to follow the pattern. And that word pattern is really interesting. It means sketch. I, um, when I was uh, in California, I had a friend who was an artist and he invited me over to his house and he had this huge picture of Christ carrying his cross. It was, it was awesome. And, and I was admiring it, and openly, I mean, I wasn't going to ask him to give it to me, but I was just admiring it. Well, the next Sunday, he actually brought me an, an 8 by 11 rendering of it. And he explained to me, I didn't know, I'm not an artist. It's a handicap in my life. I can barely make legible things for Pictionary. That's the extent of it. But he explained to me, that he actually did it on an 8x11 first and then used that as a template to paint the bigger picture. And he gave me the template. And, and so th this is the idea here is, Timothy, you've been given a template. You take this and you finish the portrait. You have an architectural rendering. You go ahead and, and you build it. And, and Paul knows Timothy. I mean, they walked together on the various roads together, having those conversations. They set up camp, talked over the fireside or over the, the light of the fire, uh, he would hear him preach. He was sent to be Paul's representative to other churches. He helped Paul write some of the scriptures. I mean, he had a clear understanding of how Paul not only lived, but what he taught. And what's interesting when you see this term, follow the pattern or hold the pattern, is to be done so in faith and love. And, and so this is not talking about intellectual assent. He doesn't, isn't just to understand this in faith and love but it is to hold, to execute the pattern in 
faith, and love. He is to do the doctrine. He's to live out the doctrine, live out the faith that Paul taught and modeled for him. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine a couple of days ago, and he was telling me that he um, befriended the town drunk, right? the guy who was you know, known to just have a public drinking problem. And he said, this guy loves John MacArthur and R.C. Sproul. If you were to talk to him, you would think that he went to Bible college. And this is what he said. He says, I'm often afraid to talk to him because after I talk to him, he often goes out and gets drunk. As if he kind of earned a go ahead and sin. He just talked about theology pass. So he knows the doctrine, he just doesn't do it. You see, true belief in the gospel just changes how you live. I mean, the gospel teaches that we sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And our sin deserves divine wrath and judgment. And Jesus came to earth, lived the perfect life we should have lived. And when he died on the cross, that wrath and judgment due to us was actually poured out on him in our place. And this allowed God to forgive us of our sins, and that was confirmed by the resurrection of Jesus so that when we turn away from our sin and follow him in faith, we can have eternal life. Part of the gospel is Jesus conquered death by conquering sin. And in the words of Paul, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6, 2. We read in 1 Corinthians 6, 16, 6, 19 through 20, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have had from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Part of the gospel is you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, and if you have been purchased by Jesus, who do you belong to? You belong to him. So you live like it. You do the doctrine. You see, if you don't do the doctrine, <laughs> often you'll be faced with a crisis. If I don't do the doctrine, you might find a doctrine that you can do. Uh, I was reading some sociological studies of why Christians fall away in college and why young people are leaving the faith. And they came up with some interesting conclusions. And again, this is sociology. I don't know, but I think there's some, there's some merit to this. They said that it's no accident that the falling marriage rates, the elevated marital age and the smaller marriage pool has led to an absence of faith. They say that we overestimate how effectively scientific arguments secularize people. It's not science that's secularizing Americans, it's sex. Isn't that interesting? A lot of times, people grab onto these scientific arguments, they kind of hold on to these different doctrines because they want to justify how they live. Orthopraxy leads to orthodoxy. Heteropraxy, having a different practice, leads to 
heterodox faith. If you don't do your doctrine, you'll change your doctrine. You'll go off to college, and everything that we taught you here is going to stick in your mind. You might go out and party and do all that stuff, but you're going to feel terrible about it. And you should. And so all the good times you want to have, you'll be haunted by this thought that God sees it and disapproves. So if you keep on doing these things, then you'll adjust it to say, well, God sees it, but maybe he approves. You know, maybe there's some new understanding of doctrine and theology that can allow me to do this. Or perhaps you'll say, maybe God doesn't see it, and you'll start to change your view and your impression of God. You see, if you don't do your doctrine, you will eventually start to change your doctrine. And that brings us to the last point. Defend your deposit. Verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. To guard the deposit basically is to take what somebody else has given you and protect it so that you can give it back to them. In this case, the deposit is the gospel. You are to guard it. You are to protect it. Years ago, when Julia was just born, I went over to Russia uh, for a mission trip. And I was asked by the missionary to bring some money over for him, right? His supporters gave him the money. It was put into an account. I went to the church that supported him. They gave me $10,000 that I put into a, a money belt and wrapped it around my waist, right? Hooked it in there. And we went from LAX to Frankfurt, Germany. And then Frankfurt, Germany, we explored there for about 12 hours. And then we got on the plane to Samara, Russia. Then went from Samara to his apartment. And then I gave it to him. And the whole time, I kept on doing this. <laughs> Pulling for pictures, just so that, yep, still there, still there, yep, still there, right? I mean, when you're carrying that much cash around you, you're always aware of what you're defending. So when it comes to the gospel, I mean, the gospel is not your message. It belongs to the Lord. He has given it to you. And yet there's going to be tremendous pressure and temptation on you to contour this deposit, to change it, to alter it, to, to suit your taste or the culture around you. I'm going to give you three examples of how this is done in college. The first one, I'm going to say this is the most prominent one. This is the most prominent the permissive gospel. I think this is the most prominent one. This one teaches as, that as long as you had a come to Jesus moment, as long as you had like this gen, you grew up in church and a come to Jesus moment, you can live any way you want. Because God is a God of love. And you can claim the comforts of Christianity and still party. A couple of years ago, um, I follow this on the blogosphere. I do not watch this show. But it raised an interesting cultural discussion. The show is The Bachelorette. Everybody's being poker-faced. I never watch that show. Do not reveal that I watch that show. You shouldn't watch that show, by the way. But The Bachelorette, this is what I think the premise is. Like, you have a bachelorette, and there's a bunch of men who want to marry her. And through a series of shows, she chooses who she is going to marry. But apparently they never get married. I don't know why they call it the bachelorette. 
But in this case, you, the two main uh, characters of this interchange was, was Hannah, who was from Alabama and was a confessing, professing Christian. And then you had Luke, who was also a very serious-minded Christian. Now, the fact that they're both on The Bachelorette raises questions, but we'll just work with that. <laughs> but Luke um, confronts Hannah in this little snippet and tells her that if you have been intimate with other men on the show, I don't want to continue being on the show and pursuing you. Right? It was the throwdown. Well, this leads to a simmering anger on Hannah's part that culminates in saying very loudly and directly to him, I have had sex and Jesus still loves me. Now, naturally, some Christians brought that up on Instagram and other pieces of social media, and she doubles down, and she wrote this after that response. I refuse to feel shame. I am standing firm and believing that maybe God wants to use a mess like me to point to his goodness and grace. You know, the people who give Jesus a bad name is not the people who are breaking God's law. It's those who are calling out the Christians who do. This is the permissive gospel. Now, let me just say very clearly, so you know it from Scripture, Hebrews 13.4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Okay, so the adulterous, that means one party is married. So it's sex with somebody who is not your spouse or somebody, sex with somebody who is somebody else's spouse or if you are married, somebody who is not your spouse. And then sexual morality covers everything else. Right? That is forbidden by scripture. Sex is only to be expressed within the covenant of a one man, one woman biblical marriage. Further, Jesus warns everybody, and this is sweet Jesus, right, who seems to love everyone. People forget that he says this. Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, Christ died for, for your sin to deliver you from your sin. And if you have a gospel where it's bad news to be removed from your sin, where you get angry at people who call you out on your sin, that's not the real gospel. That's the permissive gospel. And I think that's probably the number one false gospel that many Christian kids begin to embrace. Now, they may sense that and they may sense that they are judged by all these other people. And so there, there's a tendency to want to judge back, right? To these people who are calling you out on your sin, you want to point out the deficiency of what they believe. And I think that's what leads to maybe the, the wider embrace of the second false gospel, which is the social justice gospel. You go off to college and, and you begin to see things in a whole new light. You become enlightened and 
and you become disturbed at what you perceive to be the strong correlation between conservative Christianity and conservative politics. You begin to see that all this emphasis on evangelism is just an excuse to not change the world. That these people want to rescue back people out of the world, but not change people or change uh, the oppression that goes on in this world. And so uh, you might develop a fuller version of the gospel. And you point to Luke 4 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, understanding this, this is about Jesus' ministry. It's not a call that we go out and proclaim that you can be healed of your blindness. Is that when the Messiah comes, so comes a new age when all these things will be remedied, and that will happen when the Lord comes back. And if you want to be a part of that, then Jesus needs to be your Messiah and needs to be your Lord. But secondly, as Christians, we should all be concerned about oppression. Agreed? I'm very concerned about the oppression that goes on when babies are murdered inside their mother's womb. I'm concerned about the oppression that goes on when people are sex trafficked and forced into prostitution and pornography. I'm also concerned about the oppression of racism when it happens. We're all against oppression. We want to relieve suffering, right? Christians should want to relieve all suffering, especially eternal suffering. If you have a campus group or a church that is more passionate about activism than evangelism, there is a serious problem. Remedying those things is the fruit of conversion, is the fruit of the gospel, but it's not to be confused with the gospel. That's the social justice gospel. And if it causes you to become more judgmental towards other Christians, that's not good fruit. But this social justice gospel can bleed into this third dangerous gospel, which is the progressive gospel. It's the social justice gospel that's all about liberating the oppressed from world systems and structures instead of liberating those who are oppressed by the weight of sin. Absent from this gospel is any mention of God's wrath. They're uncomfortable with dealing with the language of the atonement, that God poured his wrath out on Jesus Christ. They're uncomfortable with dealing with, let's say, the eternality of hell. But instead, they have an alternate gospel that is dressed up in the guise of spirituality, where they'll say, Jesus accepts everyone. Jesus would never get in the way of love between two people. Jesus was a refugee. Jesus accepts foreigners and strangers. Jesus does not create walls that prevent us from coming to him. People need to live their truth. Some people are born gay, and a real Christian accepts everyone. See, when you go off to college, you're going to be exposed to a whole new world. You might make friends with people in the LGBT community. And what you'll find is that many of them are kind and very compassionate. And part of the reason why they are kind and compassionate is because they have been uh, rejected by people. They know what it's like to be excluded. They know what it's like to be hurt. And so they have very strong sense of empathy. And you'll know them. You'll care for them. And you'll want to relieve their suffering. You might even hear some stories of how they had conservative 
parents who were very harsh and judgmental towards them, and your heart will break for them. And one of the things with the social justice or the progressive gospel is you need to show compassion to people their way. You need to empathize with people and relieve their present hurt. But true compassion is informed by scripture, and we understand that we need to love people God's way, and we want to relieve their their suffering now, but we really want to relieve their eternal suffering. And the way to do that is to share the truth. Now, you might be tempted to want to adjust what you believe to accommodate your new friends. Perhaps the Bible doesn't give a blanket condemnation of homosexuality. Uh, Perhaps there's an exception for those who are in loving, monogamous, same-sex relationships. And they will point to various books that are written that, that seem to advance that thesis. But that is a desire seeking a theology to justify it. And no matter how well-intended it is, if it is fueled by compassion, compassion is great as long as compassion on God's terms, not other people's. You see, all this to say is you will be met with many challenges to your faith. And many of these challenges will need answers. And if you only draw upon your Wana and Adventure Club verses, you will be overwhelmed. See, college is a, is a time when you're going to grow in your understanding of English and mathematics and, and culture and, and even your own self. Your understanding of God's word and theology needs to grow with that to keep pace. This means that you spend time being disciplined to read your Bible. It means that you begin to explore the depths of Scripture and the Christian worldview. It means that you are in a community where the pastor is teaching truth and even wrestles with these larger issues. Now, I realize that the prospect of all of this, right, doing your doctrine, designating your discipler, and defending your deposit can seem overwhelming because for most of your life you have relied on the support and comfort of your parents to help you do so and of this community to help you do so. And now you're going to be leaving this and be on your own and, and you're thinking, how can I do this when I'm by myself? But I have good news. You're, you may be on your own, but you're not by yourself. Look at 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, Guard the good deposit entrusted to you by the Holy Spirit. The third member of the Trinity, the omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-wise, all-present Holy Spirit lives inside of you, Christian. His will is your sanctification. He's given you the power to do it. He is more powerful and stronger than all the armies of this world combined. And so, when you are intimidated by this institution that seems to be opposed to everything that you believe, you remember 1 John 4, 4. Little children, 
You are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. If you do all these things, you will not fail because you have the power of the Holy Spirit to animate and energize your pursuit to stay faithful and to grow in your faith. See, ultimately, college is a time of of tremendous uh, adventure and opportunity. We're big fans of Lord of the Rings in our family. Next to the Bible is the most read book. I think that's a good thing. But there's beautiful imagery in it. And there's a scene where Frodo reminisces about advice from his uncle Bilbo, who also had his grand adventure. And he he talks about how there's beautiful mountains, wonderful treasures, all these things to say. But, But he tells Frodo this. It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. So you could just never have an adventure and never leave the Shire and never leave your home. But what do you lose? What do you lose? It would be very difficult to do that and fulfill the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. You know, and sometimes when you do hike, we, our, our family, we're a family of hikers. Some kids refer to them as death marches, but they're family bonding experiences by pain, suffering, or by beauty. And, and if you want to see the waterfall, if you want to see the mountain peak, the mountain view, you do have to hike to get there. And, and there are times where I think to myself, One slip-up, and this could go very badly. You trip, you fall, and being that there's a sheer cliff going all the way down, there's nothing to break your fall. But if you keep your feet, you stay faithful, and you keep walking, at that point, you can see the majesty and the glory and the beauty. There is danger. There is tribulation, but there is a tremendous opportunity. So don't go to college thinking that this is the end of my faith. At the end, you make it through. You can have a profound ministry and impact on other people. You can graduate from college knowing that if I kept my faith here, I can keep it anywhere. And you can have a fresh and deeper understanding of your walk with the Lord. You keep your feet. You designate your discipler, you do your doctrine, and you defend your deposit. And should you do that and keep that parting advice, you will be faithful and then some. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you and we pray for our high school graduates who are going off to college, whether it's KU or K-State or Flint Hills Tech or Emporia State or Washburn, we pray that they will do as they have been instructed. The college will be a time of growth and transformation. And Lord, we pray for our church as we may have some college students who are sent from other churches to our community that we will help them to do the same. Lord, we understand that the world is opposed to us, it always has been, and we pray that we will continue Um, to know that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Help us stay faithful in Christ's name. Amen.